great to see everybody tonight. Um, for those who may not, may not know, uh, I'm Aaron. I'm uh, one of our community group leaders here. Um, really thankful to be here with you to continue worshiping together as we, uh, as we conclude our look at John chapter 16 tonight. And so over the last several weeks, as we have been studying uh, the, gospel, uh, the, the gospel of John, and in particular John 14 through 16, we've been looking at what's called uh, Jesus's farewell discourse. And this was his final formal instruction to his disciples on what they could expect to happen after he returned to the Father. He, Jesus wanted them to understand uh, all that was about to happen and why his leaving them was actually a good thing. But through that whole time, uh, the disciples struggled with what he was saying. They, they tried to understand, but um, understanding was elusive to them. And it makes sense that they would struggle because Jesus often spoke in these obscure, cryptic ways, these using figures of speech as he spoke mysteriously of mysteries that were too big for them to grasp on their own things that they could only understand after the Spirit had come. And throughout this discourse, there had been this sense, there's been this sense of anxiety that's been building as the disciples kept hearing, but not quite getting what Jesus was saying. And as they did, they, they, but they did become more and more concerned with what they did understand. As Jesus said over and over, things like, in a little while, you will see me no longer, and where I'm going, you cannot follow. And as they kept asking, what do you mean? That's where we find them, as Jesus' farewell discourse reaches its conclusion. The anxiety had built to its breaking point, and Jesus had still one more important lesson to impart, a lesson that would ultimately change everything. And so as we dive into the text tonight, looking at John 16, verses 16 through 33, my hope is that we will all see how Jesus' lesson speaks to our current moment. Because, let's be honest, there's, there's a lot that we, can, that we can feel anxious about. I mean, Many of us probably feel the weight of anxiety, of trouble and sorrow pressing upon us. For, for some of us, it may even feel like a darkness that just won't lift. And perhaps the cause of that is, is that we're looking around at what's happening in the world and we struggle to make sense of it. Or maybe our anxieties and sorrows are rooted in our homes and our, and our families and tensions in our marriages, in health concerns, in sudden potential job losses, um, a child who, a child, whether, um, whether a teenager or an adult child who seems to have rejected the faith that you cling to. And so from this passage, which ends in one of the most beautiful and hopeful declarations in all the Bible, there are three core truths that we need to see together. First, that Jesus comforts us in our anxiety, trouble, and sorrow. That Jesus transforms our sorrow into joy. 
And Jesus prepares us to live in a world of sorrow with joy. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. So Father, thank you that we have this time together. Thank you that, that we get this opportunity to explore your word tonight and see what you have to say to us through it. God, help us to be attentive to you, to be receptive to what you want to tell us so that we can glorify you in a world that is so broken and gives us so many reasons to feel anxiety and concern and fear. And thank you that we have good news that we get to see tonight. And pray that you will help us to see it clearly and that you will be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, Jesus com comforts us in our anxiety, trouble, and our sorrow. So let's read verses 16 through 18. Now, just as a heads up, I'm reading from the, the net translation. So if you're reading the ESV or another one, it's going to sound a little bit different, but the major beats are all the same. So Jesus begins, in a little while, you will see me no longer. Again, after a little while, you will see me. And then some of his disciples said to one another, what is the meaning of what's he, what he's saying? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, after a while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And so they kept on repeating, what is the meaning of what he says? In a little while, we don't understand what he is talking about. And so right away in verse 16, Jesus told the disciples once again of his imminent departure from them. Just as he uh, just in, as he had in previous passages, such as John 7, 33, 12, 35, 13, 33, 14, 19, and 16, 5. Um, and the disciples were confused by this. What is he talking about, they wondered. What is the meaning of what he's saying? In a little while, you won't see me. And again, after a little while, you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father, we don't understand this. But it also seems like they were afraid to ask him why. I mean, they'd been with him for, for years at this point. There really shouldn't have been any reason for them to be afraid, except that maybe that was exactly it. They may, there's a degree to which it's possible that they, they didn't ask because they wanted to save face because they had been with Jesus so long and he had said things like this before. So shouldn't they understand what he is talking about by now? That he was telling them that he was going to die and rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And before any of us say, yeah, they should have gotten that too quickly. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. The disciples did not have, not really have a complete concept of a Messiah who would die and rise again and then leave to send another comforter, another counselor, another helper. The way that Jesus has been promising that he will. 
their ideas were, were still too rooted in this idea of a fully human king who would restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory the way that it was in, in David's time. And so the idea of a Messiah who would rescue his people through death and resurrection was part of what they could not bear, as Jesus had said in verse 12 of this chapter. They needed the Holy Spirit to help them understand this profound mystery. And the same is true for all of us as well. Because whether we follow Jesus for a few days or a few decades, there are things that we do not and cannot see clearly that are too much for us in the moment. And this is why profound truths will fly over our heads for years before we start to grasp them. And why we might suddenly see something that we've never seen before in a passage of Scripture that we have read dozens, perhaps even hundreds of times. But regardless, you can, you can sense the, the anxiety that this mystery that, that Jesus has been talking about creates. The disciples are perplexed, confused, concerned. And they want to ask, but they get tripped up. And Jesus can see this, which is what leads us to verse 19, where he says, where it says, Jesus could see that they wanted to ask him about these things. And so he said to them, are you asking each other about this? That I said, in a little while, you'll, you'll not see me. Again, after a little while, you will see me. So Jesus here, here's the thing. Jesus did not need to access his divine attributes to see the struggle that his disciples were having. It was plain on their faces. It was super obvious to everybody, especially to him. And so when he said this to them in this instance, he wasn't offering this as any kind of rebuke or correction. This was actually an act of kindness on Jesus' part, giving voice to the question that he could see that they wanted to ask. He was, in a very real way, comforting them by saying, look, I know you don't get it. I know you're struggling with what I'm telling you. And there's something that's, that's powerful in that, isn't there? That just by giving voice to what concerned them, Jesus showed that he cared about their anxiety, their sorrow, and their forthcoming grief. And by doing so, he was offering them comfort. And he does the same for us. When we are struggling, when we are filled with grief and sorrow, when we are filled with trouble and anxiety in our hearts, we need to know that he is there and that he is there offering comfort to us. He is not unaware of what we are concerned about, and he's not standing far away waiting for us to, you know, get over it, and then he'll be cool with us again. He is with us in the moment as a man of sorrows who is, a, is acquainted with grief. He is there offering comfort to us in our anxiety, our sorrow, and our grief. But, but how? I mean, after all, Jesus is not 
physically here in this room as he was with those disciples in the upper room 2,000 years ago. But even so, he is with us and he comforts us. And he does so in, in three ways. First, he comforts us through his word because the Bible is the primary means through which God speaks to us. It's how we know what he is like. We know his plans and his purposes for the world and all that he has done to rescue and redeem us through Jesus Christ. It is a book that guides and instructs us in how to live faithfully in light of all that Jesus has done. But it's so much more than that. It is a book that is filled with words that speak to the deepest needs of the human heart. It's, think about the times when you have been struggling, and I've had this, this happen so often, where, where I'm concerned about something, I'm worried about something, and then um, I'll, I'll just happen to look at my phone, and I have this, the, the little verse of the day thing, just as a, as a little reminder on my, on, my, on my phone. And so many times, in God's kindness, it just happens to be that, that those words that are on my screen at that exact time are actually what I need to be reminded of in that particular moment. Or there are times when you'll be, you'll be feeling anxiety and concern or sorrow and doubt, and someone will come along and they'll say, say just the right thing. They'll remind you of something that God has said in his word. Or you'll be reminded of it yourself. You'll be reminded of something that you read that speaks to that situation. So Jesus comforts us through his word. And he also comforts us through the Holy Spirit. And so if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died in our place for our sins and rose again from the dead, he is with you right now because he sent his Spirit to live in you. And through his Spirit, he is with you in this moment. He is guiding you, teaching you, and comforting you. And third, Jesus comforts us through his people. Because each one of us, if we are Christians, are a means through which Jesus offers care and comfort to one another. This is why in, in our community groups, we will say things like, we will say things like, we um, that we honor, that we rejoice with those who are honored and that we mourn with those who are mourned. We weep with those who weep. We want to encourage and comfort one another, to spur one another on to love and good works as we seek to live faithfully here and now. And so through his word, his spirit, and his people, Jesus comforts us in our anxiety, our trouble, and our sorrow. But he doesn't just offer us comfort he offers us assurance because he transforms our sorrow into joy now listen to verse 20 i tell you the truth or truly truly i say to you you will weep and wail but the world will rejoice you will be sad but your sadness will turn into joy so here Jesus gave an answer to the question the disciples were afraid to ask, albeit 
He does it cryptically. When they're wondering, what did he mean when he said, in a little while you'll see me no longer, and again after a little while you'll see me? In answer to that, Jesus begins by saying, I tell you the solemn truth, or again, truly, truly, as it says in many translations, with this language that has an almost vow-like feel to it. He says, you will weep and you will wail. You will mourn and you will grieve because he is going to be crucified and killed. That doesn't sound like assurance, but just stay with me here. The disciples will see him no longer because he will be put in a tomb less than 24 hours from when he was saying these words. There would be no question that he was dead. And all who were threatened by Jesus, the world, which is to say the authorities that opposed him, would rejoice in contrast to the disciples weeping. In their mind, Jesus was defeated, dead, gone. That, that problem, that problem, that troublemaker from Galilee wasn't any trouble any longer. Except there's just one thing. He didn't stay that way. You will be sad, he told them, but your sadness will turn into joy. Why? Because, as he said at the beginning of this, after a little while, you will see me. Death isn't the last word for Jesus. The disciples would mourn. Yes, they would grieve. They would weep and wail but their sadness would turn into joy because, and the source of that joy was the resurrection of Jesus. They would see him again on the third day after his crucifixion and to help them understand what he was saying and what they would experience, he offered this metaphor, this, this almost a little mini parable in verse 21. He says, when a woman gives birth, she has distress because her time has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the suffering because of her joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So yes, the disciples would grieve, but just as a woman experiences pain during labor, that, that pain is replaced with joy when she sees and holds that tiny human for the first time. And so it is with them, he said. You'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will ever be able to take that joy away from you. And this is where Jesus' promise of, of sorrow being transformed into joy is most clearly seen. Because it's not us willing ourselves into joy. It's not us saying, all right, let's just get happy. Let's be, let's, let's be positive and see the bright side of everything. He says, you have sorrow, but I will see you again. 
And so this contrast that he offers puts the emphasis where it belongs. It puts the emphasis on Jesus. Because it's Jesus who takes their sorrow and our sorrow and transforms it into joy. And this isn't some kind of temporary feeling of happiness. It's a lasting joy that is rooted in Jesus' resurrection that sustains us in the sorrows that we will continue to experience while we wait for his return. A joy that no one can take away and a joy that changes everything. So before we go any farther, where do you need to be reminded of that joy in your life? Where is Jesus speaking to you now in that? Where is he reminding you to look to him as he comforts us in our anxiety, sorrow, and trouble, and as he, tra and he transforms our sorrow into joy through his death and resurrection? And as he came to the end of his lesson, we see this third important truth in how he prepares us to live in a world of sorrow with that joy. And what I mean by that is that Jesus does not encourage us to embrace any kind of pie-in-the-sky uh, faux optimism or toxic positivity that, that turns a blind eye to any kind of pain and suffering. Instead, he calls us to live out of that true, deep, abiding joy, a joy that's rooted in our faith in him a joy that encourages us to do three things, to pray boldly, to believe confidently, and to live courageously even as we face trouble and sorrow. So what does it mean to, to live like this? What does it mean to pray boldly, for example? Well, look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, At that time, you will ask me nothing. I tell you the truth. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive it, so that your joy may be complete. Now, there's a couple of ways to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 23. First, at that time or in that day uh, that opens this verse is a phrase that refers to the last day, which is this code word for the end of the age that began with Jesus' resurrection and ends with his return when he brings about the new creation. It's the time that encompasses every moment from that, that first resurrection Sunday to right this second and tomorrow and the next day and every day until Jesus returns. And so with that, in mind, this verse carries two implications. And so the first is that Jesus is referring, um, in a sense, to their, their understanding that their questions will be fully and truly answered, that a time is coming when they will actually understand what Jesus has been saying in cryptic ways, that when they will begin to grasp the mysteries that Jesus has been imparting. And we'll see that a little more clearly in, when we get to verse 25. But that's not the only thing that's being re referred to here. It's that there's this great 
boldness that comes with our prayers. That we can call out to the Father directly. That he is fully accessible to us because of Jesus. I mean, this is, and Jesus says, pray in my name. Anything that you ask in my name of the Father, he will give you. Now, we need to, we need to remember that, that to pray in Jesus' name isn't some kind of magic formula. It's, this isn't witchcraft or a spell that we can use to trick God into giving us health, wealth, and diamond light bulbs. Instead, praying in Jesus' name is rooted in our belief in who Jesus is and our love for him. It's boldly praying that we would grow in obedience to Jesus and become more like him as people who abide in him. Whatever we ask in Jesus' name will be given so that our joy will be complete, so that we will bear good fruit as branches connected to the true vine of Jesus, living obediently and faithfully to him. So, let me just encourage you. Pray like that. Pray boldly, like Jesus encourages. Don't be afraid to hold back. Ask for greater understanding. Ask for everything you need to help you to be more like Jesus, to be faithful to him, to bear fruit. Because the Father will hear you, and he will answer. Pray boldly, but also believe confidently. Now listen to verse 25. I've told you these things in obscure figures of speech. And a time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in, obsc in, in obscure figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So verse 25 brings us back to where we started in verse 16 and verse 23. That even though Jesus spoke mysteriously of mysteries, what had been said would make sense. That they would understand because the veil of mystery would be cast aside when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, at my house, most of us really love puzzles. Um, I, I got a puzzle that was all Shakespearean insults and it's wonderful. It's hilarious. Um, so much fun. Um, but it was a hard one to put together. Because it, it's, and, and that's the thing, we like difficult puzzles. And when you, when you are dealing with difficult puzzles, say the ones that have a thousand or more pieces, um, one of the difficulties with those is that it can be really hard to make sense of what you're seeing, even if you've got help from the, the cover of the box. And sometimes the image that you're, you're building is obscured until you find just this one piece that makes it all make sense. And when it comes to what Jesus is talking about here, the resurrection is like that. It's the piece that makes the picture clear. The resurrection makes Jesus' cryptic teaching clear. And because of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, came and he guides us into all truth. He helps us to see and understand what we could not without him. And a 
this puzzle piece doesn't just help us to understand the what of Jesus' teaching and his actions, but it also uh, helps us to, to grasp why we can pray so boldly as he commanded earlier. Now look again at 26 and 27. At that time, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so in verse 26, Jesus turns back to that phrase, in my name. And he doesn't suggest uh, a formula or any kind of restriction. Instead, he's pointing us to this greater truth that the Father loves us. He loves us because of Jesus. And he welcomes us. He invites us to come to him. And all of this points us back to this cycle of love that Jesus described in chapter 15, verses 9 through 16, that uh, the Father's love for one another, the Father and Son's love for one another fuels their love for us and our love for them and for one another. And so here we're reminded that the Father loves us because we love Jesus. And we love Jesus because the Father and the Son loved us by sending Jesus into the world. And while that can honestly make your head spin a little bit, just trying to describe that, you know, made me a little bit dizzy. I hope that you believe that, Christian, and that you believe it confidently. Because the Father loves you, and you love him because Jesus came into the world. That's, that's just beautiful. And when we, and when we in a, just a, in a few minutes, when we celebrate communion, when we remember the shed blood and broken body of Jesus for us, that's an opportunity to thank him for how he's loved us in such a profound way. Now, one other aspect of believing confidently means acknowledging that there's always going to be more that we don't know. That we're never going to arrive at complete knowledge in this life. And this is where we find the disciples as we, we get into verses 28 through 30. So Jesus says to them, I came from the Father and entered into the world, but in turn I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And so the disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not in obscure figures of speech. They're like, all right, we get it. Right on. We understand what you're talking about. And they say, now we know that you know everything and do not need anyone to ask you anything. Because of this, we believe that you have come from God. And so they offer that well-meaning but misguided statement. We get it now. We understand. They're like, okay, cool. You've cleared up all of this. We know it now. We're good. Right on. Okay, what's next? Can we, can we have the kingdom now? Is probably what they're thinking. Now, here's the thing. Do they believe that Jesus came from God? Yes, of course they do. But do they understand what he's talking about and what that really means? No, because that won't happen until later because 
Again, they're missing that key piece of the puzzle. And Jesus called them out on it, and he said, do you now believe? Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and I will be left alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And the important thing for us to see right now, there's so much in here, but tonight, we need to remember that when we are prone toward this kind of presumption, whenever we think that we've got it all figured out, Jesus, because he loves us so much, he's going to correct us in that. Say, no, you don't. And when he does, He's calling us to turn away from our presumption and toward the kind of confident belief that says, I know I don't have it all figured out. I know there's a lot I don't know. And I know that with every day, there's going to be even more that I realize I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that the Father loves me because of Jesus. And I hope you all know that, friends. And I hope you believe that because it's true. And so my encouragement to you would be to believe and believe that confidently because that is what Jesus calls us to do in this world of sorrow. Now, let's look at our final verse, verse 33, which gives us this final principle for living in a world of sorrow with joy. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage. I have conquered the world. So what Jesus offers here is a final call to live courageously and to do so specifically not because we are any sort of bold warriors of any kind, but because he has overcome the world. We don't overcome anything. He's done it all. So to live courageously means to trust him, to see that he is our only hope because he is our only hope. And that's something that we desperately need right now because left to ourselves, again, we've, we've got some pretty good reasons to be anxious. I mean, the world's a giant mess for so many reasons. And when we're confronted by that mess, we are, in our own devices, we're tempted to look in one of two wrong directions. We might look to ourselves to try to fix the problems, which, I mean, let's just be honest, that's not going to work because while we all have contributions to offer in making the world a better place, we're also the ones who made the mess. And so if the world's a giant dumpster fire, you can't expect the people holding the matches to put, a, to put it out. It doesn't work that way. So... We might look to ourselves to solve the problems and fall on our faces. Alternatively, we might also just be tempted to give up altogether and embrace hopelessness. 
to say that, well, because everything is awful all the time, well, nothing else really matters, so we may as well make the most of it and have as much fun as we can to, and be the kind of people who say, as those uh, who were described in Isaiah 22, 13 did, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. To be joyful nihilists who laugh their way into destruction and despair. But Jesus calls us to something better when he calls us to have courage, to take heart. It's to live out of our trust in him as the one who overcame the world. To live as realists who recognize the problems of the world and refuse to turn a blind eye to them, who commend what is praiseworthy and condemn what is reprehensible no matter where it originates from who mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who are honored, who pursue meaningful change where we can as we pursue justice, mercy, and compassion for the good of all while pointing to Jesus as our only hope. And we live as optimists, as, as fundamentally hopeful people because we actually know how the story of this world ends. And it's good news. We know that, that the flaming dumpster fire of the world actually gets put out, but it's Jesus who puts it out. And we have a sure hope that no one offers because of that. We have a Savior who actually saves. Guys, don't underestimate how important that is. We have a Savior who actually saves. Not one who pretends, not one who gives the appearance of, but who actually does it. Jesus overcame the world. He overcame sin in death, in his death and resurrection. And they have no power over him. And through him, they have no power over us. And we, if we are Christians, are his people in this world, empowered by his spirit as his representatives in this world, showing them a picture of a greater reality to come. As people who cling to the hope that Jesus gives and live as joyful people, bearing good fruit in this world till the very end, whether that's the day that we die or the day that Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And as we end our time together, or this portion of our time together, let's remember that truth. Because in this world, we will have trouble and sorrow. But take heart. Have courage. Jesus has overcome the world. And he is here to comfort us in our anxiety, trouble, and sorrow. He transforms our sorrow into joy. And he prepares us to live in this world of sorrow with joy. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news of this passage that Jesus has overcome the world. That even when things seem their darkest, when everything seems hopeless, that there is always a real, genuine reason 
for us to not despair, but to have hope, to have joy that comes from you. It comes from your love for us that's shown in sending Jesus into this world to live and die and live again for us. Father, help us to embrace these truths, to see how Jesus is comforting us when we need it, to see how he is transforming sorrow into joy and how he has done that in our own lives and continues to do that in our lives and to live faithfully in this world as people with good news to share, as people who are joyful because of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.